If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John and chapter 11, I promise I'm not going to talk about the election anymore. I did that last Sunday. If you want to hear about it, go on the website or get the podcast. We are looking today as a continuation of our series, Who Do You Say That I Am? And Will and Abby did an amazing job this morning, didn't they? I tell you what, yeah, I just thought, I'm going to let Abby preach this morning. And Will, my goodness, I want to watch that Netflix show. I'm like, this is amazing. He has such an ability to communicate. Um, I'm very grateful for Will and Abby and their family. Uh, So Jesus uh, has a close family that he has a family that he's close with. They're friends of his. Uh, They live in Bethany and there's particularly an interesting family dynamic. We don't know if these uh, three are married because we happen to know they are brother and sisters, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. We don't know if they're married even. Have you ever thought about that? It's interesting, we think of family one way but I was thankful of, uh, of Anna and Judith and Danny used to live with them. And I thought, that's kind of the setup what we're talking about here. Two sisters and a brother living in a household. And Jesus loves these three. They are his disciples. They're devoted to following him. They are always honoring and worshiping him. Like when Mary, she washed Jesus' feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Now that seems scandalous. Don't anybody try to do that. To me, okay? My feet are very ticklish. And your hair, <laughs> I'm sorry. Not that I'm Jesus, but I'm talking, that's weird a little bit. No? Uh, and then one time she broke open this, this pure nard. It was an ointment and she anointed Jesus' feet. And again, wiped them with her, with, with her hair. And I'm like, okay. But she loved Jesus. And it showed, scandalized some people, made Judas Iscariot kind of upset, but he had other issues. And, and then they also hosted and they served Jesus. Like when Martha uh, threw a party for Jesus, and, and yeah, she didn't have the best attitude. She kind of got mad with her sister for not pulling her own weight. In fact, she went to Jesus and said, Jesus, don't you care? Anytime you have to say that to Jesus, chances is... He doesn't care like you think he should. Don't you care that my sister's not helping me? Tell her to help me. Now, that's a whole sermon in itself. But the point is is that Martha loved Jesus too. She, She served and honored him. They all loved Jesus. And so when Mary and Martha, who loved Jesus, and he loved them, had their brother, Lazarus, who loved Jesus, and he loved him, Become deathly sick, they sent word to Jesus. And this is what they said. He whom you love is ill. Now, I'd thought about that. I would love that to be my title. People call me pastor, and that's all right. But I would love for it to be known. He who you love. That Jesus would love us so much that people would know That's our identity. And so Jesus responds in verse 4 of John 11. But when Jesus heard that he was sick, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified 
through it. Now, this is very intriguing to me. A sickness that is for the glory of God. That may mess with your theology a little bit. A few weeks ago, we talked about a blind man. You remember he was born blind and people asked him, why is he blind? And, and they said, is it because of him? Did he sin or did his parents sin? And Jesus said, that's not the point here, guys. It is that the works of God might be displayed in him. I think sometimes we get bogged into why it happened and we forget to realize that Jesus is about to do something that blows all of that out of the water. And now Jesus is saying to his disciples, this illness is for the glory of God. And then he goes on, he says that the son of God might be glorified through it. It makes me realize that Jesus doesn't always view our struggles and challenges the same way we do. But though he may see it differently, as Will and Abby said earlier, Jesus has still come to give resurrection life to each of us and to help us see it from his perspective. If we continue the story in verse 17 of John 11, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. And Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, oh, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Which, by the way, was a statement of faith because not every Jew believed in the resurrection. Pharisees did. The Sanhedrin, many of them were made up by Sadducees. They typically did not believe in a resurrection. So even in what she's saying, she's making a statement of faith. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And Mary said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who is coming into the world. Two sisters, desperate to keep their brother from dying, waiting for Jesus. But he doesn't come. Death came. Jesus didn't. At least not in time. The fact that he wasn't there is pretty much all Martha can think about. Lord, if only, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you had been here, but you weren't, you could have done something about it, but you didn't. We do this, don't we? We look at our past, the brokenness, the pain, the grief, and we feel like we've been let down. Our past frames out everything we feel in the present, and it discolors everything that we see in our future. 
We might have even felt betrayed or hurt, disappointed. And deep down, if we're not careful, we start to blame Jesus for not being there. We start questioning his care. He could have done something, but he didn't. He could have been here, but he wasn't. You remember earlier when Jesus said, and I mentioned to you, this illness was for the glory of God? Well, maybe an even more radical statement that Jesus made to his disciples is found in verse 14. He said plainly to them, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there. So that you may believe. Did you get that? I'm glad for your sake that I wasn't there. The moment you think, where are you? I wonder if his absence or our perceive in him to be absent is for our own good. Jesus not being there was going to produce more glory, more life, more joy, more belief than, he, than if he had been there in the first place. So Martha has this incredibly honest moment with Jesus. She says, if only you had been here, Lord, but then has to tell him what would have helped her believe in his goodness. She says, but even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give to you. And some of us do this too. We speak the truth, but then we say what we hope might come true. <laughs> Trying to make ourselves believe, conjure up belief rather than trust in him to show himself strong. We find it hard to, to let him touch our brokenness, our unbelief. And we, we try to heal ourselves while Jesus is offering us so much more. What was perceived as his absence in Martha's past was designed to make her believe. And Jesus does the same for you and me. He entangles our past, helping us believe him in our present so that we can have hope in our future. What happens next? Well, Martha goes and tells Mary that Jesus is asking for her. And John eleven thirty two 32 says, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She said the same thing. But notice she didn't add to it. She, she didn't try to conjure up uh, a good answer that she wanted Jesus to apply to help her believe. She just said the honest truth. If you'd been here, he would not be dead. And when Jesus saw her, verse 33, weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, this reaction may surprise you a little bit. It does me. Because we know, we've read the story, we know what Jesus is going to do. Why is he so deeply troubled? What's the problem here? Your Bible, and my Bible is ESV, it says he was deeply moved in spirit 
And my translation, in fact, most translations, water down the emotion a little bit of it. It's not exactly what it should be. The, the verb is, well, here, let's see what it says. Embrimaomai. You want to do it again? There it is. Embrimaomai. I got to make sure I get the right pronunciation. This word is very fascinating because it's also used to describe an rage that a horse has where he's snorting and ready to charge. It's, it's kind of an intense emotion. Just the fact that it says he's deeply moved in spirit may not be the truest sense of what this word means. Embrimaiomai is more intense and it's describing something that's about to break free. Now, A lot, of, a lot of times people see this and they think that Jesus is deeply troubled, so this must mean he's helplessly wanting it to change. But instead, he's seeing it and he hates what he sees and he's about to do something about it. It's a difference. Maybe the NLV, I mean the NLT, the New Living Translation says it best, which is fascinating that the New Living Translation would be more accurate than some other translations. It says, a deep anger welled up in him and he was deeply troubled. An intense, an emotional anger. That second term, deeply troubled, is also used to describe Jesus when he considers the cross. When he's thinking of that, it says he was deeply troubled. And so we see these two verbs describing something that is of Jesus and he is extremely agitated at what he sees and he doesn't like it. He's deeply impacted by the horror that we face that sin and death has produced. And as a result, he's ready to do something about it. Grant Osborne, the commentator says, the specter of death hanging over all humanity unsettles him. This is critical for us as well. Christ and Christ alone has overcome death and we must direct our lives by that fact. If you continue the story in verse 38, it says, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb, and it was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. But Martha, who said, of course, Jesus, God will do anything you ask. She says, she says, wait, Lord, by this time it will stinketh. That's literally what it says. It will, there's an odor that you, it won't be pleasant. For he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God. Jesus arrives at this tomb, still seething over the sin and death that has been done to his creation and to the ones that he loves. And he's about to confront that evil and break its power over his friend. Jesus is the conquering warrior. 
And he has been sent by the Father to defeat, defeat the power of sin and death in our lives and to liberate us from such bondage. And this is about more than just Lazarus being raised from the dead. This is a foretaste of what is going to happen when Jesus goes to the cross himself and dies and then is raised again on the third day. And it is also a foretaste of what is to happen when he comes again, when each of us who are in Christ will be raised to join him. I want you to get this. I want you to understand this. If the Lord tarries in his return, each of us will face a physical death. They will all put us in a box or in a hole or in an urn. Our body will no longer be who we are. Now, for the believer in Christ Jesus, it's as simple as going to sleep and waking up with Jesus. That's what Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But if in that moment, all those that have ridiculed us for our faith are standing around, they could easily say, Jesus must not care about them. They died. They could easily say, I thought he opened the blind man's eyes, but he couldn't keep them from dying. But the promise that we have when we are in Christ Jesus is that we will never die. For Jesus is our life that begins the moment we receive him into our life and it never ends. So how does this story end? Verse 41. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out and his hands and feet were bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many have said that if Jesus, that Jesus' authority was so profound that if he hadn't named Lazarus by name, that every tomb would have given up what was inside. Can you imagine? He had to say Lazarus because otherwise be a whole lot of dead people coming back to life. The kingdom of God is now at hand. It has come and broke through the power of sin and death. And now we understand why Jesus didn't come to heal Lazarus in the first place, because his glory was going to be revealed in him coming back to life. He was being used to show that Jesus is indeed the resurrection and the life. Now, just imagine being there. Wouldn't you have enjoyed that? I mean, it had to have been electrifying. It was like a shock to the system. They were grieving and wailing. There was so much hysterical grief. And then everything is different. Exuberant joy, relief, astonishment. What is happening? He was dead. And now he's alive. And while we may not be there ourselves, I want to tell you, 
that all of us who are in Christ Jesus will also have one day the exuberance of being raised from the dead. And this is how I close. First Thessalonians 4. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord, that we who are alive, we are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This day, may we be encouraged that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Amen. I was so struck when you read the part about for your sake, and it was the very thing we would have thought would have been for his sake, that he did those amazing hard things for him, and yet he did them for us. And it made me remember um, a set of verses in First Peter that I'm going to read before I pray for us. If you pray to a father who judges men by their actions without the slightest favoritism, then you should spend the time of your stay here on earth with reverent fear. For you must realize all the time that you have been ransomed from a feudal way of life passed on to you by your fathers, not with money payment of transient value, but by the costly shedding of the lifeblood of Christ, the unblemished and unstained lamb of sacrifice. It is true that God chose him to fulfill this part before the world was even made, but it was for your benefit that he was revealed in these days. For you who found your faith in God through Christ God raised him from the dead and gave him unimaginable splendor so that all your faith and hope might be centered in God. Now that you have, by obeying the truth, made your souls clean enough for a genuine love of your brothers, see to it that you love each other fervently and from the heart. For you are the sons of God now, that's what Abby was saying. We, are, we have it now. The living, permanent word of God has given you his own indestructible heredity. Father, thank you that you are 
our daily resurrection and life. That you have given us the capacity and the power to believe. Not just the gift of faith, but the ability to believe beyond all believing. And you've promised that if we believe, we will see your glory. Not in the future, in an eternal state, but in the here and the now. Father, help our unbelief. Help us have the courage for you to touch any broken, unbelieving place and cause your faith to live there that we might benefit fully from your ransom and redemption. Lord, we thank you that you have come to deal with our past. And you come into our present to give us belief that you're in charge of it all. But you also come to give us hope and a future. And so I pray for anyone here today that's listening or here in this place, that their past hangs them up, where they can't get past it, where the fear that you weren't there, that you didn't do it, has kept them from trusting you in this place currently where something new could be revealed. I pray, Lord, that you will open their eyes, open our eyes to see the full measure of what you've done, what you're doing, and where you're taking us. And I pray that we as a people, as your followers here on earth in the year 2020, we can have that kind of future hope living under the full awareness that you are the resurrection and the life. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.